Theory of Knowledge, Key Concepts. The following 12 concepts have particular prominence within, and thread throughout, the talk course. Evidence, Certainty, Truth, Interpretation, Power, Justification, Explanation, Objectivity, Perspective. Culture, Values and Responsibility. Exploration of the relationship between knowledge and these concepts can help students to deepen their understanding, as well as facilitating the transfer of their learning to new and different contexts. Theory of Knowledge Guide, 2022. Introduction. The understanding of key concepts and terms is crucial to success in talk. It is from our understanding lit. A standing under or what stands under or grounds and provides a base to the key concepts that our knowledge is produced or brought forward. It is the questioning of these grounds regarding whether or not they are truly grounds that is the foundation of the theory of knowledge course. Below are precis of the basic concepts used in talk. Each would require a separate blog in order to explore them in their full possibilities of meaning. Initially in the West, it was understood that words and their meanings were historical in nature while language itself was ahistorical. From language logos, and its grammatical rules arose what we understand as logic, while grammar related to right speaking, logic related to right thinking. Both language and logic were considered ahistorical until the thinking of the French philosopher Rousseau. It was Rousseau who first pronounced that language and reason were historical and that human beings themselves were historical animals. We ourselves dwell within this stunning paradigm shift with our belief in the modification theories of evolution from Charles Darwin and others. Philosophical English is Latinate in origin and the Latin is, usually, a translation of the original concept from the Greek. So, for example, the Greek word logos is translated by the Latin rior or ratio and from this human beings come to be understood as the animale rationale, the rational animal. The Greeks determined human beings to be the zone logon echon, the animal capable of speech or discourse, the speech that related human beings to their world and to other human beings. It was this speech which distinguished human beings from other living beings. You and I are capable of reading this blog, Fido, the dog cannot. These different definitions of the Greeks and the Latins have given rise to many various interpretations of what human beings are and illustrate the difficulty of not only translation, but also of trying to determine the historical meanings of our basic concepts. Concepts are the grounds, the principles, the beginnings, the archive, from which our understanding derives, and the results we achieve and the conclusions we reach regarding things are given beforehand in the manner in which we approach the things of the world for example physics must report itself mathematically since it is the mathematical that determines its beginnings and the logos from which it originates. Basic Concepts Below are given some basic approaches to how we may determine the nature of our basic concepts and how we have come to define or set the limits or horizons to our understanding of them. An horizon is that open space within which something dwells and its limits define what that something is. Certainty relates to the belief that what we hold is truly the case regarding something be it an object, situation or condition, and that what it is is its actuality or reality. Certainty relates to the correspondence theory of truth and its establishment and grounding through the principle of reason. For certainty to be held, that about which an assertion is certain about must be shared or rendered to others i.e. experiments must be repeatable, hypotheses must be supported by evidence and handed over to others. This rendering has been called logos from which the concept of logic is derived. Reason is, and has been, understood as logic. Certainty results when the reasons are considered sufficient reasons for some thing being as it is and they are handed over to others. Without the handing over, verification cannot take place and so the assertion remains merely subjective as an assertion. The requirement of certainty is founded upon doubt. If we do not doubt or if we are not skeptical regarding assertions that are made we would not need certainty. The requirement for certainty in knowledge comes to the fore in Descartes cogito ergo sum, while I may not be certain of objective truth, 
I am certain that it is I who is doubting and it is I who is doing the thinking. Doubt is the first step to thought for Descartes, and as such it is a way of being in the world, an ontology. Opposed to this view was trust. The Greeks trusted in the goodness of the world initially and then doubted assertions made regarding that world. This trust in the world allowed the Greeks to have moral certainty regarding the virtues of various human actions within the world and to establish a hierarchy of what was best for human beings. We, today, have no such hierarchy because we have no such certainty. We are exhorted to appeal to the fact-value distinction, that assertions of fact cannot be the same as assertions of value. In our self-knowledge we may have psychological certainty regarding the way things are and this certainty is based on resoluteness and will. If one examines the views of the followers of Donald Trump in the USA, we can see that psychological certainty can sometimes be false but that does not affect the belief in the certainty of things that his followers hold and their relation and importance to those followers. Those who attack the followers of Trump do so on the basis of the principle of reason and its realization in the correspondence theory of truth. This is sometimes called epistemic certainty, that certainty which stems from what is understood as knowledge. However, whether the views are those of the right or of the left, the drive to certainty produces intolerance towards what is outside of those viewpoints. This intolerance is a reflection of the belief that all values are subjective and that reason and science cannot provide us with the objective certainty of those values. While it was initially hoped that tolerance would be the product of this viewpoint, the opposite is what occurs in fact. Followers of Trump accept the QAnon belief that Democrats are pedophiles and satanic cult worshippers. Such views are modifications of those held by the Germans of the Jews in the 1930s which ultimately led to the European Holocaust. Culture, the word culture is a relatively new word in our language arriving in the 19th century. As with all words, their meaning is to be determined from the social contexts and conditions from which they arose. Why and of what are we speaking when we use the word culture? Culture is a very general term and indicates the thinking and actions that social groups share in these, in turn, determine the thoughts and actions of the individuals within those groups. In some instances, it is referred to as a mindset. What are these mindsets and from where do they originate? In 19th century German philosophy, the word Weltanschauung arrived from two words, Welt or world, and Anschauung meaning view, view of, outlook on the world. The word Weltbild also arrived, meaning world picture or a picture of the world. These two words, like our words culture and civilization, do not mean the same thing. A world picture is usually associated with science or a science such as a physicist's world picture or the mechanistic world picture, while a worldview can be pre-scientific or scientific. A world picture is usually a theoretical view of the external world while a worldview is a view of life, a view of our position in the world, and how we should act. Adherence to the same world picture may hold different worldviews and enter into war using the weapons supplied by their common world pictures, as is the case with many conflicts in the world today. A world picture is only one constituent of a worldview. A worldview may be personal, individual, expressing one's own particular life experiences and opinions or it may be total, extinguishing all personal opinions. We can see variations of these among populist movements operating in various countries throughout the world. The modern world picture in the West involves mathematical science, machine technology, the reduction of art to an object of experience, human activity as culture and, as the realization of values, civilization, the concern in politics for a cultural policy, an atheism that coexists with the secularized Christianity and intense religious experience. We conceive of the world as picture and we are in the picture or we conceive of the world as text, something that requires interpretation. The world is captured within a frame. Things as a whole are now taken in such a way that they are beings only insofar as they are presented by human beings, the representer and producer. What is called the age of humanism arrives simultaneously with the world conceived as picture. The English poet William Blake captures it in his poem The Tiger, 
What immortal hand or eye slash could frame thy fearful symmetry? A picture requires a frame, in the case here, a system. Ancient and medieval human beings did not have a world picture. They did not consider themselves as subjectum nor did they consider themselves the center of beings and that the world they experienced needed to be explained, and assessed in terms of human beings and with a view to human beings. The whole picture and anything in it is within the control of human beings so we can start with a clean slate and remake everything anew. Culture and civilization are two words that are used interchangeably at times. They are not the same. A culture provides the open space that allows the artifacts of civilization to come into being. We speak of the ancient Egyptian civilization and we can recognize the artifacts that have come down to us from it. Archaeologists then search for the culture that allowed the civilization to come into being, Egyptian mathematics, religion and politics for instance. We can speak of technological civilization and technological culture in the following way. The instruments and gadgets of technological civilization are brought into being by the technological culture which provides the open space for their realization and production. There are no computers and hand phones without the technological culture that requires them, and in the future, they will be looked upon as evidence of technological civilization. Experience, experience, like all basic words, changes its meaning over history. What counts as experience at a given period depends on a prior interpretation of the world that is not itself derived from or vulnerable to experience. Such an interpretation is derived through language, and what is shared among human beings. We believe we know that what we have experienced in our privacy is true for us, and we seek verification from others to justify our interpretation and an understanding of those events from others whether in formal settings such as controlled experiments or in the informal settings of social chat groups. But those interpretations are based on an interpretation of the world and the events in it that is prior to our own personal experience and knowledge. There are many different types and kinds of events that we call experience. For example, many Americans might say that was quite an experience when they speak about the Trump administration in the future and this would be referring to their own internal feelings with regard to various events that occurred in their country. The strife and divisiveness brought about by different worldviews will produce quite different interpretations of the experience of the last few years. Experience can refer to things slash events both internal and external. Externally we can go forth and travel, or learn, hear of, find out. We can also undergo something similar to the example provided above and learn from such an experience. We usually call such knowledge learned from experience common sense and this type of knowledge is distinguished from the knowledge gained by theoretical experience or science. The Greeks called theoretical knowledge episteme, and they distinguished it from techne or know-how or knowing one's way in and around something. The knowledge gained from everyday experience was called phronesis, and this kind of knowledge assisted in living within communities among other human beings. Mature individuals have knowledge from phronesis, those who are not mature do not. This knowledge has evolved into what we call emotional intelligence today, but the Greeks saw emotion as the way in which we disclose the world about us and not as something primarily subjective and individual. We first encounter the world passively one, we come across something without going in search of it. In active experience, we go forth to look for something. We go to something to see, perhaps with artificial aids such as microscopes, what happens to it under varying conditions, either waiting for the new conditions to arise or intervening to produce them. The word experiment is derived from the word experience, we intervene in something to see what happens, if we do such and such, only now we do so in anticipation of regularity, for example when so much, then so much. The modern experiment essentially involves exact measurement. Objects are shorn of their essences and regarded as mere individuals conforming to mathematical regularities. These regularities determine in advance what counts as objective. Scientists do not conduct exact experiments to discover whether nature conforms to mathematical regularities, they do so because they presuppose a projection of nature as mathematical. 
experiment in this sense is quite different from experience, science becomes rational mathematical, i.e. in the highest sense, not experimental. Experiment and experience were once contrasted with the medieval practice of examining authorities and previous opinions. Now they are contrasted with mere observation and description, guided by no mathematical anticipation. The issue between competing scientific theories, for example, cannot always be settled by experience. One cannot say that Galileo's doctrine of the free fall of bodies is true and that of Aristotle, who holds that light bodies strive upwards, is false, for the Greek conception of the essence of body, of place and of their relationship depends on a different interpretation of beings and therefore engenders a different way of seeing and examining natural processes. This is an instance of the general idea that our mode of access or way of knowing is a manner in which we experience a type of entity, for example atoms or historical figures, varies with our prior conception of their being i.e. our understanding of what, how and why they are as they are. The truth of a principle can never be proved from its result for the interpretation of a result as a result is conducted with the help of the principle, presupposed, but not grounded. Our interpretations of what we call knowledge is based on the principle of reason but it is not grounded in every case. The Greek fundamental experience of the being of beings, which underlay and gave rise to both the subject-predicate form of their language, its grammar and their conception of a thing as a subject with accidents or qualities, indicates the priority of the understanding of the being of beings that first determines what we believe knowledge to be and how we experience the world and thus our arrival at what our understanding of experience may be. Explanation An explanation is a statement to others which describes the how and the why of things, their causes, conditions and contexts, and the results or consequences of what we have determined to be facts. The statement or account must make something clear, bring it to light, and because it deals with truth by bringing to light, it may establish rules or laws or bring to light already established rules and laws in relation to the object or phenomenon under discussion or examination. In dealing with the question of how, an explanation makes something clear or easy to understand. It is a telling and a showing or a reason for or a cause of something. It is related to the Greek logos or speech. You use it in your exhibition, and the word exhibition itself means a showing forth, a bringing out of hiding and that which is responsible for the bringing out of hiding. To bring something out of hiding is to reveal it and this is what the Greeks meant by truth. What is responsible for the bringing out of hiding is the principle of reason. We begin our statements with because, the cause is, so that the statement becomes a showing forth of the why. The statements make the exhibition become an exposition such as an experiment in science or an interpretation of a poem or a work of art. Evidence, evidence is the requirement of the principle of sufficient reason to justify, explain or render an account of things, conditions and situations in order to establish and ground their truth or their correspondence to reality for being what, how and why they are as they are. Evidence is the demand that things give an account of themselves for being what and as they are in order to justify assertions and judgments made regarding them. Whether it is the assertions and judgments you make regarding the objects in your exhibition, or your assertions or thesis statements of your essay, your demands of your teachers or your parents, sufficient reasons have to be given to account for things and situations as they are given to you in your day-to-day -day lives. We may speak of empirical evidence as that information that verifies the truth, which accurately corresponds to reality, or falsity, inaccuracy, of a claim. As we have written elsewhere, the data which is placed in a form so that it may inform and become information, is carried and made renderable to others and for others through the principle of reason. In the empiricist view, one can claim to have knowledge only when based on empirical evidence, the thing must be brought to presence before one. Think of this in relation to your exhibition. You must exhibit, or bring out of hiding and hold to view so that it will be able to stand and be seen by others. In our writing on David Hume, we have shown that he uses the principle of reason to question the principle of reason in empirical observations. 
Evidence does not give certainty but it does provide confidence in our beliefs that things are as we believe them to be, it provides justification for our believing that things are the way that they appear to be for us. Evidence provides for us our interpretation of what we call facts. Interpretation, what we commonly mean by interpretation is to provide an explanation for something that appeals to reason and to common sense. An interpretation is meant to bring something to presence in order for it to show what, how and why it is as it is. In group 1 and group 6 subjects, you are asked to provide an interpretation of a work of art, whether a novel, a poem or painting for instance, and in doing so name it as such and such or so and so. In the human sciences attempts are made to find fixed, permanent interpretations of social life which attempt to understand what is present at all times and in all places when living in communities, while in the natural sciences explanations are looked for through experiments. Our lives are pervaded by interpretations both of ourselves and of other entities and things. Our core theme seeks to interpret how we understand ourselves, while our optional themes seek to understand other entities in the world around us. Our everyday interpretations or awareness of things is prior to our systematic interpretations undertaken in the human sciences and prior to our explanations provided by and given in the natural sciences. You need to find your way to the library or the science lab and interpret the contents in those places as books or science equipment before doing any science or reading. When you walk into a classroom, you do not first see uninterpreted black marks on the whiteboard or hear the sounds of your classmates arriving. You perceive these things right away as printed or spoken words even if you cannot understand them. That you understand speech as speech or a textbook as a book does not mean that your interpretation is unreliable nor that it creates the meaning of what is interpreted. Your understanding of what the things are about you is bound together with your interpretation of them. Understanding is global in general, interpretation is local and particular. Hermeneutics is a special kind of interpretation. In Plato's Ion Socrates refers to the poets as the interpreters of the gods. Hermenta is Greek for interpretation, the disclosing of that which was previously hidden. Interpretation is conjoined with what we understand truth to be. Formally, hermeneutics was the study of how interpretation occurs and is intertwined with method. It is the art of understanding written texts, but in it, all things are understood as written texts. The Irish writer, James Joyce, gives us a beautiful example of hermeneutical activity and what we understand as art, and in doing so, of what understanding and interpretation indicates in the Proteus section of his novel Ulysses. James Joyce. Ineluctable modality of the visible, at least that if no more, thought through my eyes. Signatures of all things I am here to read, sea spawn and sirac, the nearing tide, that rusty boot. Snot green, blue silver, rust, colored signs. Limits of the diaphany. But he adds, in bodies. Diltai, the founder of the modern human sciences, expanded the methodology of hermeneutics so that it became the study of the methods of the sciences themselves. When we look at ourselves as knowers, as we attempt to do in our core theme, what we are really doing is interpreting ourselves through the shared knowledge that comes to us through our culture. What we are is concealed to us through this shared knowledge, and so what is required is a deconstruction of this shared knowledge. In interpreting ourselves we are interpreting a text that has been overladen by centuries of interpretations and misinterpretations. Hermeneutics originally focused on how the Bible was interpreted, as well as other religious texts. The word itself is associated with Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and pneuma or breath, inspiration so that the word implied an inspired hearing or an openness to what the messages of the gods were. Some questions that arise from the inherent circularity of interpretation are, how can I learn what art is except by studying works of art? And how can I recognize a work of art unless I know what art is to begin with? Our implicit prior knowledge of what art is enables us to recognize clear cases of works of art. When we ask the question, is it art? How we interpret the work before us will determine the answer to this question. 
Whether the work is serious or great depends on other factors such as how deep a life it portrays, how does it illuminate the truth of that which it tries to bring to presence before us. We learn about what language is not by speaking about it and turning it into an object of study, but through conversing with it and in it. To do so, we must already know what language is beforehand. We cannot get to hear the message of the messenger unless we already know something about it ahead of time. Justification, the requirements of the principle of sufficient reason necessitate that reasons be rendered to others for assertions made regarding the reality or facts of an object, situation or condition. Human beings are the rational animals, to be irrational is, by definition, to be less than human. We believe that we can justify our scientific observations of the world through mathematical calculation, and from these calculations make predictions of events that will occur in the future. It is this predictive power lit. Before speech, that gives calculative reasoning its dominance since the predictive power provides security and certainty with regard to the way things are. This security and certainty enhances our preservation of life and allows us to empower ourselves towards enhancement of life through a recognition of life's potentialities. To predict is to make an assertion prior to that speech which renders reasons. When results are justified through reason, we believe that we have achieved a correspondence between our minds and the objects, conditions or situations under questioning. To justify is to indicate that which is responsible for the correctness of the judgment made in the assertion. As the philosopher Kant indicated, judgment is the seat of truth, or that upon which truth is grounded or based. Reasons bring that which is being spoken about to light. Without such reasons, the thing being spoken about remains in the dark hidden. Evidence or that which is experienced must be provided in the correspondence between that which is experienced, the evidence and the thing, situation or condition must correspond. For example, reasons provide the relations between a criminal and his crime and justifies the assertion of guilt. When one asserts a position that Democrats in the USA are really lizard-like aliens preying on children for their blood, just one of many QAnon beliefs, evidence must be provided for making such a statement. When one asserts that the election was stolen, one must provide corresponding evidence to show that that was the case. Believing that a situation or condition is the case is not the same as justifying that belief, as many courts throughout the USA have asserted. Conspiracy theorists, in general, lack the corresponding evidence and reasons for their assertions to be taken as true. Their beliefs are irrational, without reasons. The type of justification required by reason is, some believe, not possible when making assertions about morals or ethics because moral judgments are values and these must be distinguished from assertions made about what we call facts, i.e. there are no moral facts. Values are what we human beings create through our willing in the world and through our determination of what things are and how they are. This separation of statements of fact from statements of values is known as the fact-value distinction. Efforts have been made to make morals subject to the same calculations that are used for scientific evidence such as Bentham's utilitarianism, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. This inquiry on facts and values is discussed in more depth in the writings on Darwin and Nietzsche in this blog. To justify clearly has relations to its root word justice. How does our understanding of the word justice relate to justifying and justification? With the modern view of what human beings are given to us by Descartes and Kant, Human being is that being before whom all other beings are brought before and required to give their reasons for being what they are as beings. This is the domineering, commanding stance of human being before whom all other beings are brought before and justified as to what they are as beings. This justification is that which is responsible for something being defined as what it is, how it stands in its truth. To justify is to argue for or defend. Our reasons for justifying our mathematical calculations, for instance, are that these calculations give the best explanation of our observations and experiences, experiments. Our calculations secure our, our standing and our being in the world, 
and provide the potential for the all-important life-enhancing or quality-of-life activities that are the purposes and ends of our arts. Our calculations give our domination and control, our mastery of nature, and their correctness is demonstrated in the predictability of outcomes. There is a justification provided by the mind's correspondence to the object in question and in the mind's representations of that object in the mathematical. These justifications are shared in the language of the principle of reason through the belief in the schemata of the technological framing of the things in this world. Objectivity, at the core of the questioning regarding the IB's approach to knowledge is the question of objectivity. Our ideas regarding objectivity and of our environment as object is central to how we have come to understand ourselves and our world around us. The division of our being in the world into one apprehended as subject-object through the thinking of the French philosopher René Descartes, marking that point where human beings become the center of their worlds, is the great paradigm shift in the history of thought in the West. When we consider the nature that is the object of natural sciences and of technological exploitation, we believe that we have some knowledge regarding beings and things. Is this the case? Philosophers and thinkers have argued that we do not have knowledge of the things themselves, what we have knowledge of is our own representations of those things. The dominance of technology and its rationalism is held together in our modern world with a susceptibility to superstition for human beings seem to desire more than what is given to them in their rationalism and technology. Objectivity has its roots in the Latin obi and jacio, jacio to throw, obi against. What is thrown and what is that against which it is thrown? The things of the world must be brought to presence and made to stand in permanence so that we can make judgments regarding them. As the philosopher Nietzsche once said, only that which has no history can be defined. To define is to make judgments regarding the things of our world. But are not all things historical? Things are brought before us to give us their reasons as to their what, why, and how. It is human beings who determine what qualifies as a thing and what does not. This is made most explicit in the philosophy of Kant, the mind makes the object, but we can also find it in the philosophy of the English philosopher John Locke who determined that the things of nature were of no value in themselves unless they were taken possession of and worked on by human beings. The key with regard to objectivity is that human being is made the center of the world. The two central features of modernity are that human beings are the center of beings as a whole, the subject to which they are all referred, and the beingness of things slash beings themselves is conceived as the being represented as the producible and explainable. The following links provide greater depth regarding the question of objectivity. Court 1 Knowledge and Reason as Empowering and Empowerment Darwin and Nietzsche Part 4 Metaphysics as Logic, The Grounds of the Principle of Reason Perspectives, the following links deal with perspectives and perspectivism in greater detail. Court 1, Perspectives Walks. Darwin slash Nietzsche Part 7, on Aristotle, Algorithms and the Principle of Contradiction and the Overturning of the True and Apparent Worlds. Power, the word power is one of the most general concepts that are used in talk, and because of this generality becomes quite obscure when a more precise definition is required. Power indicates what something is in its possibilities, its potential to be something that it is not already, how something is in its manner of being in the world, what something actually is in its factual reality. When, for instance, we speak of money as congealed energy, we are speaking of it as having as its basis its roots in power. The old saying money is the root of all evil would more properly be said as power is the root of all evil, something which is caught most beautifully in the films of the Lord of the Rings. The German philosopher Nietzsche sees all being and beings as will to power and nothing besides, including ourselves as human beings. All power originates in nature. The word nature comes from the Latin natura which in turn comes from nashi, to be born, to originate. Lord of the Rings fans will recognize that this is the word given to the ring in the language of Mordor. Natura means that which lets something originate from itself. We can see some connections here to what we mean by creativity, 
for example in Shakespeare's statement that the art itself is nature. When we speak of the nature of things we mean what things are in their possibility and how they are regardless of whether they actually are or not. In Christian thought, human beings in their natural state are viewed as what is given to human beings in their createdness as beings which is turned over to their freedom. The nature if left to itself brings about the total destruction of the human being through the passions. Nature must be suppressed. It is in a certain sense what must not be. Another view, the modern view, says that it is through the unleashing of the drives and the passions that the natural state of human beings is to be achieved. This modern view is given to us most clearly in the thinking of Nietzsche who makes the body the key to our interpretation of the world and brings about a harmonious relation of the sensible and the elements of the natural. This new relation is realized through our technology which brings the elemental earth, fire, water, light into our power and by this power gives us the ability to make ourselves capable of the mastery of the world through a systematic world domination. It is from within technology that the systematic articulation of the truth at any given time about beings as a whole is given and this articulation is called metaphysics. Nietzsche will say technology is the highest form of will to power, Heidegger following Nietzsche will say technique is the metaphysic of the age. Technology is the attempt to overcome the separation of spirit and nature that dominates Western thinking and is one of the reasons why this thinking arose in the West and not elsewhere. When we attempt to arrive at an understanding and definition of the concept of power, we can begin by going back to Aristotle and noting that he describes the essence of nature as moveness, motion, or kinesis. What is the essence of movement? We view all movement as requiring a cause or agency. For Aristotle, what we call nature is taken as cause understood as Asia or Ideon in the sense of origin. By Ideon Aristotle means that which is responsible for the fact that something is what it is. Ideon is a common suffix in English, and we can understand many of our common words according to this understanding, education from educare the leading out and that which is responsible for the leading out, information that which is responsible for the form that informs. This Ideon becomes later understood as sufficient cause and agency. For Aristotle, However, Asia is not only understood as the cause of motion, it is also understood as the control present over the movement as such. The movement present in the seed becomes a tree, not something else, the movement in the fertilized human embryo becomes a human being, not a cat. This domination or control was called necessity by the Greeks, what we might sometimes refer to as the laws of nature. Movement is not merely to be understood as change of place. A tree might remain still while being in motion as is shown in its leaves changing color, etc. for the Greeks, Movement was an emergence into being present, a flower blossoming for example. The power within the things that are by nature is distinguished from the artifacts which are made by human beings. The things of nature have the power within themselves while artifacts such as a chair or desk have their power given to them from outside of themselves. The things of nature are in movement towards a completion, an end which may or may not occur. The artifacts made by human beings are complete, finished and have been brought to presence by human work. We speak of a work of art. Power must be understood as a means and not an end, just as money cannot be an end in itself but as a potential means to achieve ends. Seeing power as an end in itself is similar to confusing the piano to the sonata or the palette to the painting. The attractiveness of power lies in its dynamic potential and we moderns see this potential as limitless, quite different to previous civilizations, and this perhaps accounts for our insatiable fascination for the gigantic and our desire for speed and efficiency in all facets of our lives. When we speak of the power of words, we mean their power to create illusion and error. Currently, the role of fantasy and imagination which denies the reality of fact, the disbelief in the sciences, the destruction of language as a conveyor of truth, the belief that merely holding an opinion is freedom of thought, 
these are all expressions of the powerlessness of the people who believe in their need to find something which allows them to face the reality of the world whether it be the social reality of politics or the physical reality given to us in our sciences. Their belief finds itself present in their desire to submit themselves to a collective, any collective where the real needs of love and recognition may be found but they are found only in ersatz form. Responsibility, ethics is the area of knowledge where the idea of responsibility is a basic concept. Ethics relates to our actions and behaviors in communities, our speaking with and to others, and our ability to choose what our actions will be towards others. The concepts of ethics, morals and values are concepts that are sometimes used interchangeably in talk, but are they in fact the same things? We speak of ethical responsibility and moral responsibility but we do not have similar terminology for value responsibility. Are we not responsible for the choices we make of what we value? Different human beings value different things. On what ground do they value those things? Our lack of clarity with regard to these concepts stems from our desire to have it both ways, we wish for the freedom we believe we have in our subjectivity while at the same time holding on to the permanence of what we believe facts and objectivity give to us believing as we do that facts are value-free which, as many of the posts here attempt to point out, is not true. Responsibility is literally the ability to respond because one has the power or potential to do so and is able to affect an outcome. It involves choice and it involves our relations with others in our communities. The failure to act is also an action and usually involves our concern for our own self-interest. Responsibility is conjoined with duties and obligations towards both ourselves and others within our communities. In the West, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the question of am I my brother's keeper? are questions and examples that are constantly with us when we consider our actions. The answers to these questions are at the core of the IB program and how the IB identifies what its students should be, the IB's wishes for the way of being of its graduates. When Donald Trump responded to a question from a reporter that he bore no responsibility for his administration's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, he demonstrated both moral and ethical falsehoods regarding the concept of responsibility. Firstly, as the leader of the most powerful nation on earth, he certainly had the power, the ability to muster the resources available to him and direct them to fighting the virus, and secondly, as president he had sworn an oath to protect the American people and so was under an obligation to do so. His response was so inadequate as to be seen as a sign of his overall incompetence and unfittedness for the office he held. The only true freedom human beings have is the ability to think and to not do so is both unfree and to be less than fully human. We can see many of these themes regarding responsibility in that most ethical play of Shakespeare's, Macbeth. The play is Shakespeare's shortest because Macbeth is a man of action, a man of few words and, consequently, a man of few thoughts. The play is not about ambition, Shakespeare is not speaking against ambition but he is, most emphatically, speaking against the illness should attend it, about what happens when people aspire to positions for which they are not fitted. Macbeth is the great soldier, the savior of his country, but what makes Macbeth a great soldier, something for which he is truly fitted, are not the same virtues that are required in a king. The virtue of something is what that thing is fitted for, it's good. It is the virtue of a thoroughbred race horse that it be capable of running fast, this particular type of horse is not good if it cannot do so. Virtue is conjunctive to ethics, morals and values and their relation to what human beings are fitted for in that in the play both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth must release themselves from their humanity, they must become inhuman, like the weird sisters, in order to catch the nearest way to their desires to rule Scotland. Their descent into darkness begins with a denial of truth, and their subsequent rise is filled with fraud, deception and lies. For Shakespeare, moral and ethical responsibility are natural and comprise what being a human being truly is. Truth, Aletheia and truth, 
how we understand and interpret what truth is is essential for understanding who and what we are as human beings, and what we think the world about us is. Truth is what is sought when we begin to use our maps and journey towards understanding the entities that are in our areas of knowledge. Aletheia is Greek for truth, truthfulness, frankness, sincerity. Aletheia is true, sincere, frank, real, actual. There is also a verb, aletheiain, to speak truly, etc. The words are related to Lanthanian, with an older form Lethean, to escape notice, be unseen, unnoticed, and lethe, forgetting, forgetfulness. An initial A in Greek is often privative, like the Latin in or the Germanic on. The privative alpha occurs in many Greek-derived words in English, anonymous, atheism, etc., aletheis, aletheia are generally accepted to be aletheis, aletheia, that which is not hidden or forgotten, or he who does not hide or forget. These characteristics slash meanings of truth can all be applied to Shakespeare's Macbeth and doing so will provide an approach or an opening to an understanding of that play. We reach the essence of truth, the openness of the open, from two directions, from reflection on the ground of the possibility of correctness, adequatio, truth as correctness or correspondence, and from recollection of the beginning, aletheia, aletheiain is to take out of hiddenness to uncover, aletheia is uncovering, and aletheia is unhidden. This uncovering allows that which is to be perceived. This has three implications, 1. Truth is not confined to explicit assertions and discrete mental, primarily theoretical, attitudes such as judgments, beliefs and representations. The world as a whole, not just entities within it, is unhidden, unhidden as much by moods, emotion as a way of knowing, as by understanding. 2. Truth is primarily a feature of reality, beings or things and entities, their being and world, not of thoughts and utterances, reason and language as ways of knowing. Beings, things, entities are, of course, unhidden to us, and we disclose them to unconceal, ing, men, they can have an active sense, aleth means one. Unconcealed set of beings, two. Grasping the unconcealed as such, i.e. being unconcealing. But beings, etc. are genuinely unconcealed, they do not just agree with an assertion or representation. Three. Truth as unconcealment explicitly presupposes concealment or hiddenness. Human being and being is an untruth as well as truth. This means that falling human being misinterprets things. Falling has the character of being lost in the publicness of the society of which one is a member and of the clinging to the understanding of the world that that society has put forward, or being absorbed in the shadows of the cave as Plato says in his allegory. Macbeth's first soliloquy, Act 1 SE. 7 and the imagery slash metaphors associated with leaping and falling, his second soliloquy is this a dagger that I see before me where the dagger is revealed to him as the instrument that he will use to kill Duncan rather than as the last warning sign at that last moment where Macbeth still has a choice. William Shakespeare Untruth is not plain falsity, nor is it hiddenness, it is disguisedness of the truth. In Shakespeare's plays Julius Caesar and Macbeth, untruth is still not falsity, but hiding, concealing. What conceals is no longer human being, but being itself. The prophecies of the witches for example in Macbeth provide an example of this concealing hiddenness that disguises. There are two types of unconcealing, a, of the open, the world or beings as a whole, b, of particular beings within this open space. The first type, a, involves concealment, everything was hidden before the open was established, and concealment, persisting in that the open, reveals only certain aspects of reality, not its whole nature. It is not possible for human beings to have knowledge of the whole. Each area of knowledge provides a field or an opening in which the beings that it studies are illuminated and hidden simultaneously. The second type, B, involves a concealment that we overcome partially and case by case. Plato, in assimilating truth to light, and of the light to love indicates the openness that is necessary for things to be revealed in their full unconcealment, 
stage 4 of the cave where the human being is outside of the cave, the journey outside of the cave occurs within the human being in the cave. We choose, like Macbeth for instance, the idea of hiddenness or darkness over the light and unhiddenness, thus the many metaphors of darkness and disguise, hiddenness and forgetfulness in the play, after the killing of Duncan, Macbeth loses all sense of otherness and becomes a tyrant, and thus the privative force of Alethea, the light is constant, never switched on or off, Jean-Paul Sartre's play No Exit as a reversal of this but also a denial, and reveals everything there is to anyone who looks. We lose the idea of the open, and the comportment of love, which must persist throughout our unconcealing of beings. For Plato, morality is purely internal, and it is here in the revealing that morality, ethics and ontology are given substance, as they are, for instance, in Shakespeare's Macbeth. In Plato, Aletheia comes under the yoke of the idea. Idea, from the Greek idea and to see, refers to the visual aspect of entities or things. The ascent of the prisoners out of the cave is a progressive opening of their vision to this idea and the idea of the good from which all ideas spring, although we cannot speak of the good as an entity in the sense of a thing or object whose idea it is. Hence Aletheia is no longer primarily a characteristic of beings in themselves, it is yoked together with the soul, and consists in a homeosis, a likeness, between them which is generated through beauty, or eros. This can be understood as a triad, or triangle, the soul plus the idea plus beauty. Homeosis has since become a dequatio, in the Latin interpretation of the word, correctness or coherence, and then agreement, and since Descartes, the relation between soul and beings has become the subject-object relation, mediated by a representation, the degenerate descendant of Plato's idea. Truth becomes correctness, and its elbow room, the open, or the experience of beauty and of eros, is neglected. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Homer. Some counterclaims to this version of truth, it is not certain that Aleth's comes from A and Lanthanian. Even if it does, it hardly ever means unhidden in Homer, Hesiod, the earliest authors, and later authors, but has three main senses, the correctness of speech and belief, epistemological, the reality of being, ontological, the genuineness, truthfulness and conscientiousness of an individual or character, existential. These three aspects of Aletheia are united in Plato, and also for Shakespeare. The ascent from the cave is an ascent of being, of knowledge and of existence. Throughout the history of philosophy, it is assumed that if Plato regards truth as correctness of apprehension, he has jettisoned its other senses, while if another sense reappears, this is because Plato is indecisive and ambiguous. The three senses are fused together in Plato. Interpreting truth as unhiddenness would not save it from modern subjectivity, unhiddenness must be unhiddenness to someone, but the nature of this unhiddenness is predetermined. Plato says that the things we make by holding up a mirror are not beings that are unhidden, and that the things painters make are not Alethe, Republic, 596d, e. But perhaps this may be a joke of Plato's since he himself has written a book, a dialogue, which is a mirror of the being of Socrates, or an idealization of the being of Socrates. How is it that the things in mirrors and in paintings are not unhidden? How are we to understand how it can be said that to make things by holding up a mirror, we must take making as techne in the Greek sense? Are things no more hidden in a mirror than in their being in the world? To discuss this at length would be to have to examine the nature of the Platonic dialogue and particularly the dialogue Phaedrus which is the dialogue on writing, and this cannot be done here. In the allegory of the cave the shadows, too, require light, but in their revealing the things that they are, they are not fully shown. Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 3 S.E. Second of maybe of help here, let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, 
scorn our own image, and the very age and body of the time is form and pressure, Plato's, and Shakespeare's, through his use of personification, point is that things in a mirror are not real, not alethi in the ontological sense, but that their revealing requires a special human beholding, a beholding that takes place in the open, that the mimetic art is directed to us and to the forms themselves and what is created are the images and the outward appearance of these entities. Values The word values comes to prominence in the 19th century in the writings of the German philosopher Nietzsche. Values are what human beings create in their willing and are, therefore, subjective. The word values has come to dominate our speech regarding morals and ethics. Even the Pope uses the word values when discussing what human behavior should be. The consequences of using such a word unthinkingly are many. Values indicate that there are no moral facts or universal principles of action that are appropriate to all human beings at all times and in all places. In the human sciences, we speak of the fact-slash-value distinction and this distinction has become a principle for the thinking in that area of knowledge if it is to call itself a science. The following links address the concept of values and how it shapes our everyday thinking and being in the world. Court 1. Self-Knowledge and Ethics Darwin and Nietzsche, Part 3, Truth as Correctness, its relation to values.